Hello, I am Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Nihal, there's always the joke that talking about the weather is for boring conversations, but I love talking about the weather. I'm a bit of a weather nerd, and oh my gosh, there has been so much interesting weather happening around the world recently. Here in California, as I'm sure you've heard, we've had one of the craziest winters on record. We were just in a giant drought. And a lot of this stuff has gotten people wondering about, A, can we even understand the weather? But B, what about controlling it? So geoengineering, what are your thoughts on controlling the weather, Nahal? I check the weather every day so I know how to dress or prepare, but I'm somebody who loves the heat and loves the warmth, and if it were up to me, it would be a perfect summer day every day. But you can't control the weather. To be honest, Nahal, I thought I was going to hear you say, we shouldn't mess with that. It's above our pay grade. We've been messing with the weather. How did we get here? Uh, No, I'm surprised and heartened by your willingness to fiddle. Oh, I have an evil streak, Dan. (laughs) Okay, cool, cool, cool. (laughs) I mean, sure. That's what we're actually talking about today is human efforts to change the weather. And no, we're not talking about climate change. This episode is about cloud seeding, which is a way that people can make it rain or make it hail in a different way. And to start us off, I reached out to Katya Friedrich. She's a professor in the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder in the U.S., Katya started off with a little history of cloud seeding because it's not actually as new as you might think. Cloud seeding is basically the process you are introducing an agent into the cloud, and this can be ice that can be some kind of a chemical, and you're making the cloud precipitate that could be rain or it could be snow. And cloud seeding was first discovered in 1946 by Schaefer and Vonnegut at MIT, and they did an experiment and they used supercooled liquid clouds and they introduced cloud seeding material and they made snow fall out of the cloud. So they had this uh, 1946, this discovery that you can kind of trigger precipitation from a moist atmosphere or from a cloud. To understand how this actually works, I think it's really helpful to understand how rain works and precipitation works kind of normally. So can you take us up into the clouds here and walk us through what happens before it rains and how it starts to rain and snow and all that good stuff? Yeah, and to make it really simple, I mean, the way a cloud forms is you're taking a package of air, which contains water vapor, and you're lifting it up vertically, up to a certain level, and then the air cools as it moves up. And then once you reach a certain level, then water vapor starts to condense. And that's very similar to what we experience when we have a shower in the bathroom, and then water vapor condenses on a mirror and forms water droplets. And that's the same mechanism of condensation in the atmosphere. So water condenses, that's usually what we call the cloud base, That's what we can also Mm -hmm. see. And so water condenses into different particles, primarily water droplets. And then these droplets, if it gets cold, they can freeze to ice. So usually a cloud contains different particles, which then are solid or liquid particles like raindrops or ice. I mean, it always depends on the temperature. If you're above Mm -hmm. freezing temperatures, then you have primarily water. If you're below freezing, then you have primarily ice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you're close to freezing, you often have a mixture between rain and ice. Okay, so how do we go from a cloud to snow or rain or sometimes hail falling down to earth? 
Yeah, so these uh, tiny particles in the cloud have to become heavy enough to fall out. And so mm. one way they can do this, they can accumulate more water vapor and more water can condense onto the particles. But what mostly happens is they start to tumble and they start to um, hit into each other and then they merge and they become bigger and heavier. And mm. then eventually they're heavy enough to fall out of a cloud. So we have clouds that are precipitating, but we also have a lot of clouds that do not precipitate. So if you think about mm -hmm. cumulus clouds, they're just hovering up in the air and they still contain mm -hmm. water and moisture that we want to extract. So here comes cloud seeding into play. So the idea of cloud seeding is that we are introducing something into the cloud and make the cloud precipitate, whether it's rain or whether it's snow. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in particular, when we look at winter orographic cloud seeding, which means winter storms, then we are thinking about, we have these tiny clouds and they have a lot of liquid in there. We call that super cooled liquid because a lot of times it's below freezing, but still in a liquid state. If what Katya said just then, cold liquid water that's below freezing is a bit confusing, let me see if I can explain. When you have pure water, meaning there's very few contaminants like dust or particles of anything or bacteria, it doesn't actually freeze at zero degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. This kind of water is called supercooled water and it actually requires some sort of trigger, whether it is a piece of dust or a particle or even just physical impact, to get it to want to turn from a liquid to a solid. And you can do this at home or look it up on YouTube actually. You take a plastic bottle of water, you put it in the freezer for a few hours and when you take it out, it's still liquid, but that liquid is below freezing and very unstable. So what happens is that as soon as you bang the liquid or introduce some sort of energy into it, it'll just freeze all of a sudden. And this is the kind of supercooled water that Katya is talking about. So these kind of liquid, this is what we are targeting when we do cloud seeding. Mm. We're looking for clouds that have these tiny supercooled liquids in there because what we can do is we can introduce an agent. We usually use silver iodide. And silver iodide is very similar to ice crystals. Mm. But we're introducing this agent and we are making these tiny supercooled liquid droplets freeze. Hmm. And so as they freeze, then they can start merging and then they become snowflakes and then they can fall out of the cloud. So this process actually happens a lot in nature. So we have an area of supercooled liquid at the bottom of a cloud and we have ice crystals on top and they fall into this area of supercooled liquid hmm. and we are generating snow. So the clouds that we are targeting are basically the clouds that do not have the ice on top that can fall through. They just have the water. Katya primarily does her research in the Rocky Mountains, the tall mountain range that runs down the middle of the United States. Most of her research is trying to show that cloud seeding can produce more snow. This is important because the more snow that falls in winter, the bigger the snowpack, and that snowpack, when it melts in the spring, is critical for farmers and anyone else who needs water down in the lowlands below these mountains. But of course, cloud seeding isn't just used for snow. It can also be used to produce rain or even to mitigate the growth of hail. We hope that we are growing a lot of small hailstones instead of one big one. Putting supercooled liquid into a few hailstones, you're just basically distributing this over smaller hailstones. And the idea is mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. for farmers, if they have smaller hailstones, it has less of an impact sure. than really big hailstones. Okay, so walk us through a cloud seeding event. Take us you know, from the ground, you find a cloud that looks promising. How does a cloud seeding process go? So the first really challenging step is finding the ideal cloud. Hmm. 
So we want to look for clouds that have a lot of this liquid. We want to look for clouds that do not seed themselves. Mm. So that's the first process, which is pretty complicated because we're using numerical models to trying to find the ideal time when we have these kind of clouds. And so usually, again, if we are launching an aircraft, it needs a little bit of uh, preparation beforehand. So this process is basically half a day a day in the making where mm. we can say, okay, this is a good time where we think we have with a lot of super cool liquid that we can seed. And then once we define a takeoff time, the aircraft is equipped with iodide flares that they can burn on the tip of the wings, or they have drop-in flares that they ignite on the aircraft and then basically dropping into the mm. cloud. Mm-hmm. We also have a lot of instruments on the aircraft, so we can actually measure how much supercooled liquid do we have in those clouds. Oh, okay. So the aircraft takes off, um, usually starts flying through the cloud, and a lot of times, like they experience it themselves because they get a lot of icing on the wings. So sure. then they can determine: is this a good cloud? Is that a good situation? And if it's a good situation, they usually go on top of the cloud and then starting to either drop these flares into the cloud mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or if the aircraft icing is not really severe, they can also fly through the cloud and then basically burn the silver iodide on the wings mm-hmm. and basically place the material where we have the super cool liquid. So you introduce these seeds in the cloud, they begin triggering those supercooled liquid droplets to turn into ice, and voila, it's snowing or raining if it's warmer. So what's the catch here? Because we've had this technology for 80 years, so why isn't it more commonly used? The problem is that once we modify the cloud, it's really difficult to say what would have happened if you hadn't cloud seed. Sure. And that is the tricky part where for our scientists it's difficult too because we don't have a reference experiment. So for us it's difficult to quantify. Yeah, you need the control. How do you do a control for a winter storm? Exactly. And that's why actually numerical modeling comes in. And that is how we define this experiment that was really successful in 2017 in Idaho. So the idea of this experiment was basically we wanted to collect enough data so we can run our numerical models. So when you have a numerical models where you're trying to simulate all the processes that are going on in a cloud, um, you can, of course, also simulate something. Okay, I'm putting these agents in, I'm putting the silver iodide in. How does that form precipitation? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The caveat of numerical models is often that, yeah, they have an error bar. By error bar, Katya just means the level of uncertainty in their results. And with cloud seeding, because you're dealing with weather, which is notoriously hard to predict, confidence in data tends to be lower than it might be in a controlled lab experiment. We don't know whether they are really predicting really exactly what happened. So what we're trying to do is we're getting a lot of observations and tune our models to that the models are doing what the atmosphere is doing. In 2017, Katya and her research team had a bit of a serendipitous situation in which they were able to pretty precisely measure the impact of cloud seeding and fill in a lot of these holes in their models. The experiment that we conducted in 2017 was primarily to collect a lot of data so we can actually run our cloud seeding experiment. But as it turned out, we had some cases where we could distinguish our impact on cloud seeding versus the natural clouds. Hmm. And these were clouds that did not precipitate. So we did not have precipitation on the ground. We didn't have any snowfall. And we flew the aircraft, we put the silver iodide in, and then we generated these clouds. And these clouds were like these zigzag lines that were downstream of where the aircraft was seeding. 
And since, I mean, nature does a lot of crazy stuff, but usually nature doesn't produce zigzag lines. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah, how yeah. we're actually sure <laughs> that these zigzag lines was something that we placed. And then we also had a research aircraft that flew through the zigzag line. And we could really see that as soon as we flew into the zigzag line, we could see that there was more ice, that there was more glaciation of the supercooled liquid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As we were flying out of those seeded parts of the cloud, we could see there was more supercooled liquid. So we could really pinpoint down that what we changed and what is basically the natural cloud. And really what was revolutionary at that point was because there was no background precipitation, we could actually quantify how much snow we could produce by two hours of cloud seeding. And this is another really tricky scientific problem that we are trying to tackle is how much water can we really produce from cloud seeding? Because that is, again, the controversial part. Is yeah. like, does it, this is, goes back to, does it work? We know it does work. But what we really want to know is like at the end of a season, how much more water can we get through cloud seeding? Katya and her research team were able to measure the impact of cloud seeding in this one particular instance, and it was a really important paper. But she's quick to note that we can't take this to mean that cloud seeding works everywhere in all circumstances. So in those conditions, what percent increase in precipitation are we talking about here from a given cloud? Or I don't even know. Is that the correct unit to be asking about here? Yeah. So again, this is always the tricky part, the percentage of what. So what we showed was we were seeding an area of 100 by 100 kilometers for about two hours. And we could basically generate like the amount of water that is equivalent to um, 70 to 120 Olympic-sized swimming pools per event. And if you look over the entire region, it's actually not a lot. You know, swimming pools is probably not the unit I was expecting you to use there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but I guess in terms of percentage, right? Like, let's say it was going to rain one inch. Do you think cloud seeding adds, you know, does it make it 1.1 inch of rain? Like, what's the kind of, you know, if we can get it in a relative sense, or is that really hard to calculate? We can't really say that because, again, for those three days where we could see it, it was basically on top of nothing. Hmm. And so that is always the problem with the percentage of what? What is our reference to this? I mean, people do the like the annual, but again, when we do this, the annual is, again, really small amounts. So is that kind of the best we can do because nature is too variable? So this was just from an observational standpoint. I think the next step that we are trying to do, but we're currently working on, is simulating this over an entire season. So for um, snowfall, we're looking between October and April 1st. So what is the amount of snow that we can produce? And what we're trying to do now is run our numerical models over an entire winter season with seeding and without seeding and see how that changed. But also we want to run those for different years because every year is different. So this year is crazy snowfall. Um, Last year (laughs) was no snowfall. So again, this goes back to the percentage of what, because precipitation is so, so variable to really to see what is like, how does the impact really change from year to year? Okay. So we know the mechanism of cloud seeding works. The unanswered question, is it just kind of a drop in the bucket or is this like a measurable impact that 
cloud seeding will have. Are we talking like a potential boost in precipitation of like 1% or 2%? Or are we talking about a fraction of 1%? Or are we talking like 10%? Can you just give me ballpark estimates or we still not even know that? We do. I mean, this is probably somewhere between 5 and 20 and it can might maybe even go up to 30%, you know, but... So 5 and 20% increase in precipitation. Yeah, but saying. you see this number is pretty large. I mean, yeah. it's really 5% worth it. 20% probably yes. And again, this varies from region to region. This varies from year to year. That's why cloud seeding is so complicated. And we haven't really gotten a good answer over the last 100 years. Researchers got that range of 5 to 20 or even 30% increase in precipitation from tracking how much snow or rain falls in a region where cloud seeding is done versus a region where it is not done over the course of decades. Of course, weather is super variable year to year and even between similar areas, so you need averages over a long period of time, hence the many decades it took to get that result. And even then, you get this pretty huge spread of 5 to 30%. But there might be also regions where it's not measurable, and there might be also regions where it doesn't have an impact. Sure. So that's why I usually don't like to say a number, because it really depends. So there seems like there's a lot of it really depends here with cloud seeding, but these impacts seem quite significant. Absolutely. As Katya was saying, and you pointed out, it's really hard to measure this stuff in terms of increases in rainfalls. How much was going to rain before or hail or whatever? But that number I was able to wrangle out of her at the end there, 5 to 20% or even 30% increase, even on the low end. 5% is a really significant difference in terms of rainfall over the course of a season. People have been cloud seeding for a long time, and we know that it can have some effects. But what do we know about the impacts on farmers, for example? That's a great question. And really, the crux of the matter, right? Yes, there's a lot of variability in the rain and the science, but if it works... What does it mean for people on the ground? And so to find the answer to that, I reached out to an agroeconomist. Um, Name is Dean Bankson. I'm a research scientist in the Department of Agribusiness and Applied Economics at North Dakota State University. I work in the area of impact assessment and regional economics. And I have occasionally looked at the economic impact of the cloud seeding operations that take place in North Dakota. The state of North Dakota is located in the upper Midwest of the United States. It borders Saskatchewan and Canada to the north and is about 70,000 square miles or 180,000 square kilometers, which is roughly the size of Syria and Uruguay and just a bit smaller than the UK. But while Syria has a population of 21 million people living there, North Dakota is pretty empty. It's home to about 800,000 people. The largest industry there is farming, primarily barley, wheat, and oats. In this very heavily agriculture-focused state, the government has been running a cloud seeding program for decades. Cloud seeding in North Dakota predates <laughs> predates my term at NDSU, obviously. It started back in the 1950s. Oh, wow. And there was a number of questions back then on... How effective is this and what can we relate to our intervention in weather and the outcome of those that would be subject to whatever that intervention is? And so there was a number of studies done by physical scientists, meteorological folks, agronomists, things like that, to look at what were the effects of cloud seeding, what can be the measurable physical effect on the ground. Then the next logical question was, what does this mean in terms of the economy? What does this mean in terms of, is this a benefit? 
to the economy? Are we spending more money to get a smaller benefit? So on, you know, those types of questions creep up quite frequently when you look at a program that's funded by the government. So there was a study done four decades ago that kind of set the groundwork on this type of analysis. And then our department looked at it again in 10 years. And then the last two decades, I have been the one that has looked at this program Hmm. for its economic impact. So it was kind of like it's been done before and it kind of became my turn. And all of these studies have been brought forward as a result of needing to discuss the program's effects with policymakers, business leaders, things like that. And so it's not something we've pursued as a research goal that I have with my position, but it's something an outside source comes and says, can you look at this for us? And that's how we've done that. So I'm surprised to learn that cloud seeding has been going on in North Dakota since the 50s. I didn't realize it was kind of that much of a legacy program here. What were the goals originally back then? And basically what's going on in North Dakota that makes cloud seeding something you guys might want to be doing? Well, we need more moisture. We're very arid. If there's an opportunity to squeeze some additional precip out of some cloud formations that otherwise just disappear, that's been the driving force there. But Dean notes that in North Dakota, well, yes, cloud seeding is beneficial for squeezing out a little bit of extra rain. It's mostly used to mitigate severe hail, as Katya described earlier. We have a high amount of hail damage in North Dakota. Cloud seeding doesn't 100% eliminate hail. It's designed to soften the impact. It's designed to mitigate some of those losses. The western part of North Dakota has some of the highest hail loss rates in the U.S. Can you explain what that means when you're saying hail loss, just for someone who's not familiar with that concept? What it means is you have a crop that you're raising, and you have the risk of a hailstorm coming and completely destroying that crop or destroying a portion of that crop. And Mm. back in the 50s, most of the crops growing in North Dakota at that time were small grains. They mature at about the point in time when the hailstorms show up. So the crop doesn't have a chance to rebound. The crop doesn't have a chance to repair itself. There isn't a second crop you can plant. You're basically just out of luck. All of your fields have been largely wiped out before they really had a chance to be combined. And so with that in mind, that was the impetus behind, let's try the cloud seeding. Let's see if it makes a difference. The North Dakota Cloud Modification Project, as that cloud seeding program is known, operates across five counties and covers about 2.67 million tillable acres. So when you're looking at agribusiness, the economic impacts, what are kind of the factors you're just generally speaking looking at and digging into in this line of work? Generally speaking, we tend to look at three types of effects. One's a direct. That's something that happens right away. And then we have indirect and induced. Indirect is what the business-to-business transactions do. And induced is what the households or consumers effect would have on the Mm. economy. And then we measure size using employment, you know, jobs. I mean, that's straightforward. Employment compensation. In other words, what do people earn? We look at contribution to gross state product. In other words, what share of a state economy are you? And we also look at tax revenues and we look at business volume, the measure of all the dollars that are transacted and turned over in the economy. And so it kind of gives you an idea of, you know, what's the volume of sales that have occurred in a given economy. So you guys are taking a pretty holistic view at what some intervention, some action, some decision is going to like have downstream effects on the economy tied to agriculture here. Absolutely. So what does the cloud seeding project do? If it reduces hail, that means you have less hail loss. 
So that means you generally would have more revenue coming from the crop. Cloud seeding has also been shown to increase rainfall. And in some cases, the timing of that rainfall can represent a change in yield potential. For any particular system, that rainfall change might not be dramatic. But we're talking again about growing season rainfall that is just a matter of a couple inches of rain or four or five inches of rain. If we can add a quarter or we can add a half an inch of rain over that growing season, it has a material change for the crops in this part of the country. So our job, the study was to say, if the cloud seeding program is active in that area, can we measure the economic benefit of a reduction in hail loss? And can we measure an economic benefit from enhanced rainfall? And so we use what the physical scientists have told us is the change. And then we apply values to that to come up with what we think is the on the ground effects. And so we come up with a value per acre by crop. Not all crop has got the same value. So we look at all the different crops. We look at information from the National Crop Insurance Statistics that show how much hail loss was recorded. We extrapolate that to the total because not every acre has a hail insurance premium on it or it doesn't have coverage. We look at the recorded rainfall in that region and then we back into either a 5% or a 10% increase. So you work those numbers backwards. And can you explain what you mean by the 5 to 10% increase there? Okay, generally speaking, the cloud seeding has been measured to increase rainfall 5 to 10% over what occurred. So it's on the margin. In other words, if we had 10 inches of rain and we got a 5% increase, you can calculate how much you would have had without cloud seeding, right? Mm -hmm. So you work the math backwards and then you have that incremental amount of moisture and then you can look at how that affects your yield. And then yield times price is revenue. And if you have 50 acre a bushel wheat and hail comes in and takes half of it out, then you can assign a value to that. And so we work with those statistics and we work with those numbers and we work with what was planted, what the yields were, combine all that information back, and then we look at the per acre changes. And what we're looking at with the cloud seeding program in North Dakota is that it cost, this is when we, this is when we evaluated the program. I'm sure those costs have changed now, but back in 2019, it was $900,000 to run that program for the three months for the targeted counties, the 2.6 million acres. So that comes out to about 39 cents an acre. So do we incur a reduction in hail that's greater than 39 cents an acre on average, or a combination of reduced hail and increased rainfall that would equal 39 cents an acre. And, well, da, 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 and, and please. We, we exceed 39 cents an acre by multitudes of that value. It varies from anywhere from $3 an acre for reduced hail loss to $10 an acre for yield increases. Wow. So we are looking at something that is ballpark numbers, anywhere from $8, $9 on the really lowest scale up to probably $20 of impact per acre. And, and of course, wow. that's going to vary by crop. But hold on, if I can just pause on that number yeah, right there. Yeah, you, know, absolutely. you said, you know, just nine, 10 bucks an acre on the low end up to 20 bucks an acre and 2.6 million times 10 bucks or 20 bucks. We're, that's some real money here. Yep. We're talking about a benefit ratio, 35 to one. Wow. That raises the next question, which is, well, are we really getting that? 
or is that a play with the numbers? Mm -hmm. So we did a sensitivity analysis and we said, we have a cost of, let's make it easy math, 40 cents an acre. Okay. So the program is going to cost those counties 40 cents for the acreage that is in the program. What level of efficiency would we need the cloud seeding project to have to get only 40 cents worth of benefit back to the producers? Turns out we would only need to improve the hail loss efficiency by about 1%, or we would get 1% of what was stated that we were going to get, and the hail losses themselves would be brought back to a level that is probably equivalent. If we looked at including the rainfall, we can just about eliminate the hail losses, and we can say that the 5% in rainfall would probably equal that $0.40 an acre. Hmm. So a derivative of that would be, I believe it was 13%. So if we got 13% of the stated rainfall, that would be equivalent to the 40 cents per acre. 13% of the estimated benefit from the seeding Correct, programs. correct. So, so you're saying like 1% of the hail reduction, 13% of the estimated. I mean, we're talking like, oh, you guys, your estimates were way off and we're still coming out on top. Right, right. So so if, if someone doesn't believe the physical science and they say, well, how much of an effect would you have to have to break even? Those break even percentages are very small compared to what the physical scientists have said is actually sure. occurring. And so that bolsters the confidence that, you know, we're not up there playing in the sky, throwing out chemicals. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. by the way, if we get a couple extra raindrops or a few less hailstones, oh, we're good to go. No, yeah. actually, I think the benefits there are considerably greater than what the program costs are it would be hard to find a publicly funded project that would be consistently delivering a 35 to one ratio, at least in agriculture. Given your experience with this and you've seen the benefits, you've done the math, are you surprised cloud seeding isn't more commonly implemented as a tool for agricultural areas? To some extent I am, but coming from a farm background, I know getting a strong consensus among all producers in a given area mm. can be a challenge. Sure, <laughs> it's, sure, sure, sure. You know, there, there's some independent souls out there and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, there are some that look at it like, well, that rain would have came to me if it hadn't have been over there. Mm. The science suggests that's not true. But you're going to get detractors on something like that no matter where you go, no matter who you talk to. I can see how some people might be hesitant about cloud seeding, but it sounds like there are some pretty significant beneficial impacts too. Yeah, it's wild how cost-effective cloud seeding really seems to be in North Dakota, right? 35 to 1 return on investment is outrageous. I would be stoked on 35 to 1 returns on any investment. But he was very careful to say that this is about North Dakota, right? particular conditions, particular crops. So what happens elsewhere? Can this work in different places? That's a big question, right? Like cloud seeding is a very particular thing. We still don't really have a great handle on what conditions make it work best. And expanding it might be really beneficial as shown by Dean's work. So I actually reached out to a researcher who is studying how to improve the process of cloud seeding and make it A, more effective and B, potentially usable in more situations. My name is Linda Zhou. I'm a professor in environmental engineering at Halifa University, based in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. 
The UAE is located in a semi-arid desert climate and gets on average less than 10 centimeters or just 3.9 inches of rain per year. Since the late 1990s, the government has been funding a cloud seeding program. A 2021 study found that cloud seeding can increase yearly annual rainfall by 23%. And while that's a lot, they're not really starting out with much rain to begin with. And that's where Linda's research comes in. She studies ways to make cloud seeding more effective. My research areas and expertise utilizes nanomaterials in novel water technologies. Linda began working on cloud seeding at Khalifa University in 2015. Specifically, she's looking at finding new materials to replace silver iodide that could make cloud seeding more environmentally friendly and also more effective. Can you just explain how nanomaterials are relevant to cloud seeding? By using nanotechnology, we can do many, many things more under control. For example, the size. We can start fabricating the size which is more ideal to mm. serve the seeding material. And second, we can make this idealized sized material with better surface properties. So enhance mm. their performance and accelerate the condensation. Water technologies and filtration systems are not so very different from cloud seeding, as Linda explained. From my background of water technology, like water purifications, desalinations, I learned one very important thing is not looking for the most complex or most expensive material. Instead, because you need huge amount of water, so that means the technology has to be very cost-effective and has to be safe. Mm-hmm. So for environmental engineering of a water purification water technology, we need to choose for mass production. So I start from a table salt, which is sodium chloride. Huh. Yeah. Sodium chloride is hygroscopic crystals. So I think they meet that basic entry requirement. When something is hydroscopic, it means that it readily takes up and retains moisture and basically likes to get wet. So these crystals are solid, but in humid conditions, like say in a warm cloud over the UAE, they will absorb water, eventually melt, and turn into tiny liquid droplets that then grow and fall to the ground. So Linda takes this sodium chloride. And then I modify its surface. This material has a core shell structure. So sodium chloride as its core, uh, which we have the desirable size, and this desirable sized crystal has been coated with a thin nanomaterial layer, which is titanium dioxide. After coating, the core shell structure become more hydrophilic because the surface has been enhanced. So we make the hygroscopic particles with a high Hydrophilic oh. surface. And just for those who aren't familiar with the term, hydrophilic means it, it, it sticks to water, right? Yes. They attract water, so they're friendly with water. So if I understand correctly, essentially what you've done is you've got the hydroscopic inner salt core and then the shell, which is friendly to water. So basically you drop this in a cloud and it attracts water that melts yes. the salt. And then you've got a raindrop seed. Yes. Oh, yes. wow. Exactly. That's- So smart and simple. (laughs) So this hydrophilic layer attracts water vapors. Okay. And then they enhance and increase the local relative humidity, which accelerates 
the the liquids or turn into liquid of the core okay. uh, material, which is the salt. And then uh, presumably you get rain. So what does it look like? Can you kind of paint us a picture here, if you would? Okay, compared to the normal salt, this one is a much whiter powdery because okay. they are very fine. So their size is much smaller and very uniform. So they are very fine, loose powder. How big in diameter are they? The rough diameter is about uh, one micron. Oh, so really, really, really fine. Yes, yes. And only nanotechnology is able to make it happen. Linda and her team call this substance they've created a nanopowder. Okay, so you've got these nanopowders. Um, you designed this stuff. How did you begin testing it to show efficacy? And what did efficacy mean? Like, what was kind of your measures there? Now, how do we evaluate it work? So at least I did uh, all I can in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. And the best convincing result is come from the cloud chamber. Mm -hmm. uh, cloud chamber is a three-dimensional environmental chamber, which has controlled the relative humidity and it equipped it with a different electronic camera sensors. So in that mm -hmm. way, you release the seeding material and a series of images will be captured. So they will monitor the size of the droplets formation when they fall from the roof of the chamber to the bottom. And then there will be software to analyze the size and generate a spectrum graph. So we compared the pure salt, you know, NACL, table salt, mm -hmm and size formation, and this uh, nanopowder size formation. And the results is for the nanopowders, there are 2.9 times formation of larger size water droplets. You know, 2.9 times, that's, yes, like, yeah. that's like an order of magnitude, right? Yeah, 290%. Yeah, okay, wow. <laughs> that means, you know, uh, if you form very small droplets, it will be blown away by the wind or they remain mm -hmm. suspended in the cloud. So it's not effective. However, if you form larger droplets within that limited window of falling, then the likelihood to create rain is much higher. So for this one, there's much higher probability to form large droplets. We also tried this in a very large cloud chamber. So it's very limited trials. However, they showed very good effects in form ice crystals rapidly and also at higher temperature. Oh. So, so the equivalent of the warm cloud which form rain droplets as a lower relative humidity. So for the cold cloud, you are able to form ice crystals at a higher temperature. So instead of minus 40 degree, minus 50 degree, which is harder to find, we can form ice crystals at minus eight degree. Oh, wow. That's relatively warm for yes. being able to. Okay. Yes. So this is a big improvement. So what you, the two results you just spoke about with your research into the warm seeds saying you can produce rain at lower humidities and your research into the cold clouds showing that you can produce snow at higher temperatures, that really seems to kind of get at the bigger goal of your work, which is a, expanding the efficiency or effectiveness of seeding efforts, but more importantly, maybe, is expanding kind of where and when and the types of conditions that this effort can work in. So is that kind of the goal, right? Say, by doing your work, we can cloud seed in more situations and more places? Yes, in a way. 
to do this type of improvement, you really increase the probability for successful re-enhancement. Mm. So my belief is if the material you are releasing is more reactive and can work in a much less restricting conditions, that means no matter when you decide to use it, so the chance of success will be higher. So this is from my point of view. However, mm. what you said is also okay, because then you can targeting some impossible areas before and make mm. it happen too. That's a very good point as well, because the other experts we've spoken to, there a lot of the big question is like, yeah, we're pretty sure it works when we do it, but that's kind of the big question, right? Is how effective is it in a given set of circumstances? And if you broaden those circumstances, your chances go up. So that makes a lot of sense here. Yes. Over the next couple of years, the UAE is going to start using the nanopowders Linda and her colleagues developed in a wider scale to see if it works to really boost rainfall and is more environmentally friendly. And while her work is very exciting and seems to be pushing the boundaries of where cloud seeding can go, I think it's important that we take a step back and go kind of to where we started this episode with Katya. Even after nearly 80 years of cloud seeding, and yes, a lot of evidence showing it does work to some degree, weather is complicated. I know it's boring to talk about, but it's so dynamic, so complex, and so hard to predict that there's still a lot we don't understand about how effective cloud seeding is, where it should be used, and really some of the downstream effects that are even harder to measure. So I'm going to let Katya wrap up this episode because she summed it up best. I think we are really in an interesting time because from a scientific standpoint, we have a good understanding where we find the best clouds to cloud seed. And I think we also have a good model guidance to guide us to the times and the areas where we would see the best impact on cloud seeding. So this is very promising. But I have to say also as a caveat, it's cloud seeding, we, we do generate some precipitation. It doesn't come with no side effects because we're taking moisture out of the of the cloud system. So we don't really understand what's happening downstream to this reduced moisture. And um, we also shown that we are not really producing as much as we were hoping for. So it might help, but it might really not solve our problems that we currently have with trouts and reduced water. So I see always cloud seeding as one puzzle piece to the bigger picture that is important and that should be considered, but it's really not solving the problems that we currently have. That is it for this episode. Thanks to all the academics we spoke to this week, Katya Friedrich, Dean Bankson, and Linda Zoe. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced by Katie Flood and myself, Dan Marino, and written by Katie Flood. 
Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandy does our transcripts. Mend Marwani is the show's executive producer. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thanks for listening. 